0: Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to science stories. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to Science Stories. Today, my guest, her name is Dr. Sarah Bodenstein, and she just got her PhD at the Aquatic Germ Plasm and Genetic Resource Center in Louisiana State University. How are you doing, Dr. Bodenstein?
1: I'm uh, very well. Thank you for having me on today.
0: Is is it official yet that you got your PhD? Because when I saw you last week at a conference, and it was almost there or, or there yet. I, I, I got lost there a little bit.
1: I was getting lost a little bit too. I think it is official now. I submitted my dissertation and got all the paperwork in. So I think I have technically met all my degree requirements and my PI said that people can call me doctor now. So that makes it official for me.
0: Congratulations then.
1: Thank you, thank you. How would you
0: introduce yourself?
1: I have been so used to introducing myself as a grad student, but now I'm almost not a grad student anymore. But yeah, usually I would say I'm a researcher at the Aquatic Germplasm and Genetic Resources Center, and I study oyster aquaculture cryopreservation and develop tools to integrate germplasm repositories into oyster aquaculture.
0: That's really awesome. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. I want to start with your article that addresses the effect of farming practices on the growth and mortality of triploid versus diploid oysters. And mm, the first mm-hmm. thing of all I have to ask you is how is that... What, what does that even mean? And how is it possible to have different numbers of chromosome copies within the same species?
1: Yeah, so... Diploid oysters and diploid animals have two sets of chromosomes, which is what we think as normal. Most animals have two sets of chromosomes. And then if you have something called a triploid oyster, a triploid animal, they actually have an extra set of chromosomes. So they have three. That's why it's triploid. And then there's tetraploid Mm -hmm. oysters. They have four sets of chromosomes, tetra. Um, And in animals, it's not common to naturally have uh, polyploidy or or to have um, multiple sets of chromosomes, but it is very common in plants. And they do it a lot in plant breeding, like in corn, for example, they'll make polyploid corn strains because you get greater heterozygosity, so more genetic variants, and that increases traits that are desirable in farming, like growth, for example. And for triploid oysters, they are specifically bred as in corn, to have this extra set of chromosomes because it increases their growth compared to diploid oysters um, because it reduces the amount of energy triploids put into gonad production. So sometimes Polyploidy is to be avoided because of concerns of sterility, but actually in the case of oysters that presumed sterility is a benefit because it allows more energy for growth in the triploid oyster and they are nice and meaty all through the summer instead of spawning and releasing their gonads and losing a lot of that glycogen content. So that is the, the background of why having a triploid oyster would be desirable for farmers.
0: Then I would ask you, why would you keep the diploid oysters then?
1: Well, some farmers do triploid-only farming. So they, yeah, like 90% of their farm will pretty much be triploid oysters so that they can harvest all year, uh, well, not all year round, but a lot of the year round, especially in the summer months. Whereas if you have diploid oysters again, their meat quality, they're, they're thinner, they spawn their gonads, so they're not as delicious tasting in the in the summer months. But some farmers do a split and they'll do half triploids, half diploids. Some farmers only like diploids. They don't like the triploids. And I'd say, you, you know, they what my research has focused on is sometimes triploids have very, very high mortality in the summer. And the reason for that mortality is unknown. So some farmers like to split the difference grow triploids for the benefits that they can give. But if there is mortality, they still have those diploid oysters and they haven't lost their entire crop for the year.
0: That's super interesting. And, and it seems that there's a huge strategy in play there for a producer, right? To, mm-hmm. to, a big yes. decision to make. I really like about your article that it's a it gives a sneak peek into the oyster farming process that I mm-hmm. never have a chance to know about. For example, can you explain to the audience what desiccation and tumbling are and why do producers use them, please?
1: So the type of oyster farming I talk about in the paper you're referencing is called off-bottom oyster farming. So traditionally the way that farmers farmed oysters, it was more like a wild fishery. There would be wild oysters on the bottom and you would dredge them up essentially, dredge up these wild oysters put them on your boat and, and go back to market. And that's how people farmed oysters in the United States. Um, when we think about like those giant shell midden piles of the 17, 1800s where people in New York City were eating you know, hundreds of oysters a year, they were f- basically farming wild fisheries. Then as the wild stocks began to deplete, oyster hatcheries started popping up. We started making our own juvenile oysters, and then you would seed, quote unquote, you would spread juvenile oysters onto the bottom of regions you knew that historically there had been wild populations there, but you would still go back next year and dredge up the oysters that you had seeded the year before. And that is still uh, a very common method of oyster farming in Louisiana. And Louisiana is actually the only state where that kind of um, on-bottom farming, we call it, is still widely practiced. The Sorry, rest can, of can the, I ask you oh. a
0: quick question first? Mm-hmm. So when yes. when you do this, are you seeding in the wild? Is there a mechanism to ensure that these seeds, as, as you call them, stay in the place or just hoping that they...
1: Yeah, you know, pretty much.
0: Are you just hoping? Is it a numbers game or what?
1: Yeah, it's a numbers game and you hope and you have a historical lease in the water that your family's probably been farming for generations that has historically produced good harvests of oysters. So, you know, the conditions are right. The water currents are right. The seed isn't being, and they're not in a larval stage at this point. They um, are in a, in a settling stage at this point. So they're not going to swim away there. They're going to sink to the bottom and the conditions are right that they can grow into adult oysters.
0: Oh, I see. So it's not like you're seeding your downstream neighbor harvest?
1: No, no, you shouldn't be. That's that's definitely not the goal.
0: Okay, yeah, sorry.
1: No, no, of course. So that, that seeding and dredging method is on-bottom oyster farming. Again, only widely practiced in Louisiana, in the United States today. The rest of the country practices uh, off-bottom oyster farming where you have the juvenile oyster seed and you grow them in some kind of container like a cage hanging on a line or a bag floating on the surface of the water. And, you know, it's just some kind of container that lifts them up the, off the bottom and contains the oysters within the, the bag or the basket, whatever it is. Um, so with off bottom farming methods you practice things like desiccation and tumbling. So the oysters are in this bag hanging in the water and algae and sponges and everything living in the ocean loves to stick onto the outside of the bag. And you can actually get so much algal growth that the oysters aren't able to eat or respire inside the bag because it's being closed off from the outside environment. So to mitigate that, if you just lift the bag out of the water for... 24 hours 48 hours the algae dies the sponges die but the oysters are okay because they have evolved to be able to withstand long periods of desiccation or being out of the water because they are intertidal species so that's desiccation it's a way to make sure your your gear your bags are clean and make sure that the oysters are getting enough water flow to grow properly and then tumbling is you take the oysters out of the bag and you put them in this giant um, tube that has holes of all different sizes and it grades the oyster into different size categories. So if you have a bag full of oysters and some are really small, some are really big, the small ones are gonna fall through the smaller holes at the beginning of this large metal tube into a basket below. And then the large ones are going to make it further down and fall into the larger holes further down the tube and then you've sorted your oysters by size and you can put them back in the bags and this is good because it's when you sell you want your oysters to be of a certain size um there's like a minimum size requirement by state usually it's about like 75 millimeters so you need to know what size your oysters are they need to be uniform in the bag and also by tumbling it chips off the fragile parts of the shell on the outside of the oyster as it's growing. So it inhibits the growth a little bit, but it makes for a larger meatier oyster inside a shell with a deeper cup, which is very valuable for the oyster on the half shell market. Presentation is very important for that market. So having a fat looking oyster inside a very beautiful um, shell with this deep cup is very desirable for the customer and desirable for the farmer.
0: I see. But this, is, this has to be a sort of stress, a source of stress for the oysters mm-hmm. as well, right?
1: Yes, um, and in that paper, I did see that there was some stress, particularly on the triploids when they were desiccated for a very long amount of time and when they were desiccated for a long amount of time and tumbled. It caused higher triploid mortality because it is stressful to be out of the water especially in the summer when the water temperatures are very high, the ambient air temperatures are very high, the oysters dry out more quickly, and they're very good at anaerobic respiration, but there is a limit, and it seems like triploids seem to reach that limit a little bit sooner and uh, succumb to that stress and have high mortality.
0: Do you have a, a theory why that happens, why triploids suffer stress more than diploids?
1: I think it could be something to do with cellular function. I have not published this paper yet, but I did a series of physiological experiments on triploids and diploids at a time when I was seeing that the triploids were having really high mortality in the field, like 90% mortality. So I took a subset of those oysters back and I measured their respiration rates and their feeding rates. And I, I calculated something called scope for growth, which is how much, energy they have available for somatic growth and i looked at their gonads to see who was spawning who wasn't and i thought i was going to see that triploids were had the hallmarks of stress that they had really high respiration rates that they were having issues getting enough energy in like absorbing energy or filtering algae out of the water but actually i didn't see any results that indicated triploids had any more stress than the diploids did I, a lot of the physiological parameters were the same between the triploid and diploid oysters. So what I think is happening is triploid oysters have three sets of chromosomes. So they have more genomic content inside the cell, which increases the size of the cell. And that disrupts the surface area to volume ratio, making it more difficult for ion and uh, molecular transport inside and out of the cell um making it slower and also because the cell is bigger any molecules proteins whatever inside the cell they have to travel farther distances inside of a triploid cell which could just be one of these things if if they're already stressed because it's hot outside if they're stressed because the salinity level is really low and they need to try to um, adjust these interior intracellular molecules to deal with fluctuating or low salinity They're just a little bit slower at it than uh, the diploids are. It's stressful. I think it's a series of compounding stressors causing this uh, triploid mortality. And it is a feature of just being inherently triploid, having this different cell size.
0: So did you measure the cell size and it's actually different or is this any speculation?
1: I did not measure it. I think there are some older studies where they did measure the cell size of triploid oysters and they were bigger. Uh, But I don't think any recent research has been done on that. But I think it would be an interesting interesting follow-up. And also, I, I alluded to this a little bit. I think salinity is one of the stressors that really compounds and affects the triploid mortality. And I think an interesting research project. And I believe Dr. Morgan Kelly at LSU is doing this. She has taken... Um, samples from my triploid and diploid oysters from my field study. And she's going to do genomic analysis to see if there's any sort of um, like up or down regulation of these um, molecules that regulate the intracellular ions uh, when the salinity is changing. I think that would be a really interesting insight into how these two animals deal with this low salinity, high temperature combination of stressors.
0: Dr. Borenstein, can I ask you a couple of dumb questions about oysters, if you don't mind?
1: Sure, of course. I I love it.
0: Is there any other use than the food industry for oysters?
1: Well, some people use their shells for... I'm just thinking some people in New Orleans use their shells as like driveway because their shells are made out of calcium carbonate. So if you desiccate the shells after the oyster is already out of them... Um, and leave them to cure for like six months to a year, they can, and grind them up, they can make nice gravel. But actually a lot of use for the shells, they're recycled back to oyster hatcheries and for conservation, they're used to have this oyster seed, the juvenile oysters set onto the shells and then they use that to rebuild oyster reefs. So I guess besides eating like, yeah, for conservation oysters are pretty important and oyster reefs provide very good habitat for juvenile fishes and invertebrates. And they're also a very effective barrier uh, to stop coastal erosion and to break up um, storm waves coming into the land.
0: And I'm sorry, but I have to ask you, do Do you like oysters? I, guess, I imagine everybody asks you this all the time.
1: Yes, I do like oysters. But I will say the first time I ever tried a raw oyster when I was 16, I thought it was the most disgusting thing that I had ever eaten in my entire life and I just did not appreciate at all what I was actually putting into my mouth and eating but the more I ate them and you can go to a restaurant and they'll tell you the flavor profile of oysters coming from these different locations. And the more you get accustomed to the taste and see the variety of taste, I, I just love it. I think they taste delicious. I love that depending on where it's from, they taste totally different. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of eating oysters.
0: Do you prefer them raw or charred or cooked somehow?
1: I prefer them raw.
0: Raw. You know, I don't talk much about myself in, in the podcast, but last week it was my first time trying oysters.
1: Oh, what did you think? Did you eat them raw?
0: I, I ate them both ways. The raw one didn't blow my mind. It, it seemed like uh, like it didn't have a lot of flavor to me. Mm-hmm. But the charted one was really good. Yeah, I really liked it. And someone said that half of the weight of what you are actually eating is gonad or, or even sperm. Is that true?
1: Yes, it is. So they develop their gonad kind of just all around the outside of their body. So if you see an oyster... And it looks very like creamy and kind of white. That's actually the go-net that you're seeing. And that's what actually tastes really good. An oyster without its gonad, it kinda it doesn't really taste like anything.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So do you mind if we do our first break?
1: Sure, sure.
0: And then we come back and we can and you can tell us about your other type of research that is more um you you'll tell us about that later. Yes. Okay? Yes. <laughs> Thanks.
1: Short drive the road is calling. and it'll take you up or down
0: From rats on up to ridges 15 minutes you can fly
1: Pretty blue lights along the way, help you ride right on by And the blue lights shining with the heavenly grace, help you ride right on by
0: So before the break we were listening to Lake Shore Drive by Aliota, right? Yes. And now we're listening to Ferry Mountain by Michael and Game Chops or something like that. Why mm-hmm. did you yeah. why did you pick these songs?
1: Um the first one Lake Shore Drive that is my favorite song written about my hometown Chicago. Um, and it's about driving on this I guess it's kind of like a highway that goes along the lake. It's called Lakeshore Drive. It's actually called something else now since I moved away, but I can't I can't remember what they changed the name to. But it's just it's a very beautiful drive. Chicago is kind of a unique city because they decided not to develop any land directly on the lake, Lake Michigan. It's all public parks, so it's very nice and when you're driving along the lake, you see the parks, people biking, running, playing soccer, and you see, and the lake is huge, so it kind of looks like you're looking out onto an ocean and it's very beautiful and that song really just captures the feeling of like you know driving along, seeing this nice vista and feeling good and then the second one yeah. is a fairy fairy fountain I think it's called it's a lo-fi cover um, by an artist of of a Zelda song I can't remember what what Zelda game it's originally from but he has a couple albums of lo-fi covers of all this music from The Legend of Zelda video game series and it's my favorite thing to listen to while I'm writing nice so that's yes
0: nice and talking about writing I read your thesis and I really like in I really enjoy it reading the acknowledgements of the thesis of some people, of the people in general, because there's, I think there's some hidden information there. Mm-hmm. And you thank your committee for, and I'm quoting you, expanding my view on what it means to be a scientist. Mm-hmm. Are you referring to your simulation of the oyster cryopreservation pathway with, with that? Because it has a different approach to the traditional science, I would say.
1: Yes, uh, yeah, I definitely am. I think when I came to do my PhD, I had only done very traditional science research. I'd done traditional aquaculture research, going out in the field, you know, monitoring things. I'd done some very minimal like physiology research. I knew about, you know, genetic research, things like that. And I didn't realize that you could do more than just traditional lab work and be a successful and respected scientist so being able to do this industrial engineering research and doing some like outreach research was very eye-opening to me and it's something i really really enjoy and i don't think i would have actually finished my phd if i had to just do traditional lab research i don't love doing repetitive tasks over and over and over again for the rest of my life. So being able to be interdisciplinary and expand what I do and and connect things is very exciting to me. So that's what I was referring to in, in the acknowledgements.
0: So would you say this approach is basically considering the whole oyster cryopreservation pathway kind of as a business? or, or... The,
1: in, the industrial engineering approach? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say the reason that I started incorporating industrial engineering research is because someone who was at my lab before me um, did some industrial engineering research with catfish cryopreservation. So he kind of paved the way for me. I read that those papers. I thought it was really interesting. And what I really wanted to try to do with my dissertation is... Bridge the gap between creating a cryopreservation protocol. So, here is how you cryopreserve oyster sperm. There's been over 30 years of research on that subject, and it hasn't translated into a germplasm repository for oysters. So I talked about triploid oysters, tetraploid oysters that are used to produce triploid oysters. They have oyster breeding programs to produce oysters that are more resistant to low salinity, more resistant to heat, more resistant to diseases that cause high oyster mortality. So all those genetic resources, a lot of time and effort has gone into creating them, but they are not protected in any way. And a way to protect those resources is to cryopreserve the sperm of the oyster, preserve those genetics, and then if something happens to the live lines, you can reconstitute those genetics are not lost. It also facilitates rapid genetic development because you can send that frozen sperm really easily from hatchery to hatchery, state to state, um, transfer those genetics and develop these really... Fastidious and uh, well managed breeding programs. It's something that you see in the beef and dairy industry. They do only artificial insemination via frozen bull sperm, and it's allowed their business to uh, develop rapid genetic improvement. And, you know, they have, they get an incredible production with their cows, and they really understand how to breed and how to get the most out of every single animal. We'd like to see that eventually in oysters and also to protect the genetic resources. That's why we're interested in developing germplasm repositories. And I think a big misconception in the field of cryopreservation is if you just make a method to freeze sperm, then a repository will automatically follow. And we've seen that that's not true because there's something missing between you in your lab freezing oyster sperm and someone at an oyster hatchery and oyster hatcheries all over the country being able to freeze large quantities of sperm very consistently, store them and use them year after year. So that's where the industrial engineering came in because we wanted to treat this process of developing oyster repositories like a business like we're setting up a factory that was going to be able to run and meet production demands and and consider different costs and equipment and time constraints things like that
0: so what are the major key steps in this process Or, or or maybe i could ask you from from another way what are the major bottlenecks in this process
1: um in the method i was using for cryopreservation i I refer to it as a cryopreservation pathway because there are certain quality control steps built into the cryopreservation protocol, which makes it a little bit more than a protocol. You're, you're collecting data. You're making sure of the quality, checking the quality, getting rid of bad samples. So I'm calling it a cryopreservation pathway. And one of the major bottlenecks that I found was, one, assessing the sperm motility, so the per- percent of sperm that is moving versus non-moving after you collect it from the oyster. Um, And this is actually a quality control check because if you get sperm that has low motility initially or the sperm cells don't look good when you freeze it and then thaw it, they're gonna look even worse because cryopreservation is a very stressful process for a cell like a sperm cell to go through. So you wanna check the quality beforehand. And even if the quality is low and you decide to freeze it, that's okay. But you know that the quality was low before you froze it and that something didn't go catastrophically wrong during the cryopreservation process. So manually looking under the microscope and and counting how many sperm were moving versus not moving using this little counting grid was taking me a very long time. So in the paper, I talk about how I substituted in an automatic software that analyzes sperm and, and tells you the sperm motility and that made the process go much, much faster. And then the other major bottleneck I found was the freezing container I use to freeze oyster sperm is called a French straw. So it's this it looks like a small drinking straw, like a stir stick that you would put in coffee. And one end has this little cotton plug. And when the plug gets wet, there's there's PVA powder in it and it seals. So you put the, the sperm solution in the straw. Um, it seals the cotton end, you seal the other end, and then you can freeze this little straw of sperm. And it's a nice container because it has a very high surface to volume area ratio, which means that the liquid inside the straw freezes very consistently. So it's it's a very nice container. So after you freeze it, I was individually sorting one straw at a time into my long-term storage container. And it was taking me forever because I was using forceps to individually pick up a straw from the freezer and transfer it to a container. So myself and a um, undergraduate industrial engineering student designed this little 3D printed funnel that fit very nicely into the freezing container, and it allowed me to sort 15 straws at a time instead of one straw at a time. So that greatly increased the efficiency of the process, which was very nice. So that's it's kind of an interesting example because it's two different ends of the spectrum to, eliminate the motility bottleneck, I used a very high-tech, expensive piece of automated software. And to eliminate the sorting bottleneck, I used a very, I guess, quote-unquote, low-tech, open-source, 3D-printed straw funnel. So you can eliminate your bottlenecks in multiple ways. It doesn't always have to be a fancy piece of equipment. Sometimes it can be a piece of open technology.
0: How how, How many milliliters can you put in one straw of sperm?
1: Uh the two most common sizes are half a milliliter, which is what I used, and then they also have smaller uh quarter milliliter straws, but they do make larger ones like they make like five milliliter straws as well, used in the in for bowls.
0: And one oyster, how many straws would it produce?
1: Uh I think on average maybe like hundred and fifty to two hundred straws, but I would usually limit myself due to time constraints and I'd I'd freeze about like forty five straws in an oyster. So I would have, you know, three sets per oyster that I was sorting with the funnels. That's why I chose the number 45. So I wasn't able to freeze all the sperm that I would get from each individual oyster because they produce a lot of sperm. And when you collect the sperm from the oyster, it looks like maybe half a milliliter of solution, but actually you have to dilute it because the sperm is so concentrated. If you freeze super concentrated sperm, the cells stick to each other, ice crystal formation, it's very bad. So you have to dilute it to a certain concentration. And after you dilute it, you'll have like 50 milliliters of sperm that you have to freeze.
0: So regardless if it's a complicated or simple solution, what it it implies is that the more technology you use, the better the process works.
1: I don't know about the more technology you use i think it's more about the more you understand what you're doing and why you're doing it the better the process is i think a lot of times i've worked with different cryopreservation processes not just oyster cryopreservation and i think a lot of the times especially when a protocol has been developed in a laboratory and The person who developed it teaches the next person that person teaches the next person and then i come in and i'm like well why are you doing it that way and they're like oh i we've always done it this way this is how i was taught to do it and then you kind of have a conversation about it and you're like okay well maybe we could implement this piece of technology to make it go smoother or maybe we could combine these two steps or maybe that step isn't even necessary anymore um, and that helps you streamline the process. So some, a lot of things are kind of unconscious. And that's, again, why protocols developed at the laboratory scale don't translate well to the commercial scale because it's it's like an oral history almost. It's like we do this because 50 years ago this person told us that this is what we have to do. And that doesn't translate to a different facility even if it's a laboratory because they don't have that equipment, they don't have the specialized little crazy device that the person from 50 years ago invented and you only have one and then it breaks you can never do the process again so i think just understanding and thinking about what you're doing is the most important part of um making a process more efficient
0: and how do you model the human efficiency parts of the process so there there are parts of steps in this pathway that Mm -hmm. are performed by humans and some humans are more trained to do some things than others Mm -hmm. right is there a yes. way to do incorporate that into the model as well?
1: Yeah, so for the cryopreservation, the oyster cryopreservation, I was timing myself doing it or someone was timing me do it. And I just labeled myself as like, I'm an average operator, an average, you know, someone who's cryopreserved oysters before, knows what they're doing, but isn't excellent at it. You can actually rate operators based on their skill. So if I wanted to see how long it would take someone who's never cryopreserved oysters before, I could take my times and multiply them by some kind of skill factor that that says it would take them a certain amount of time longer to do each step in the process because they'd never done it before. Or inversely, a skill factor that says they're much faster than me and they'd be able to do each step in the process much faster. So you do take operator skill and who the operator is into account when you're doing these kind of industrial engineering time studies.
0: Have you shared the results of this study with the stakeholders or or with some governmental authorities, which are, I guess they they also consider a stakeholder, right?
1: I have not shared it with. I don't know, anyone, I haven't shared specific details of it with any government official. I've, I've talked to some people who work in Louisiana Sea Grant and NOAA about, you know, the concept of doing these time studies, industrial engineering, a little bit of like economic analysis, and I've gotten interest. Um, I've also talked extensively with hatchery owners, maybe not specifically about doing these time studies, but about germplasm repositories. And one of the main reasons of doing these um, time studies, simulation modeling, is so you know how many resources it takes to cryopreserve a certain number of oysters. So how long it would take, what equipment you need, how many people you need to do the cryopreservation, and that's really of interest to oyster hatchery managers who would be uh, uh, the most likely people to adopt this cryopreservation repository storage technology. They want to know how much time it would take them if they needed to freeze 50 oysters a year or 100 oysters a year. How many people would have to do it? What kind of equipment would they need to buy? That's all really important because uh, oyster hatcheries are essentially businesses and they do a lot of things already. So they don't have time to disrupt their entire um model just to insert this new technology that they're not quite sure about yet
0: but do you notice people are starting to incorporate this into their business
1: cryopreservation Yep. Yeah. I noticed that, well, actually I'm working with one hatchery in Mexico who's very interested in cryopreservation, but I would say they're very unique for a couple of reasons. Um, A lot of oyster hatcheries don't have super advanced breeding programs right now. This hatchery in Mexico is kind of unique because they've been working with an aquaculture technology center that has helped them develop a breeding program over the past couple of years. And because they've put all this energy and effort into this breeding program, they're interested in preserving those genetic resources and doing this cryopreservation and repository storage. So I'm working with them, you know, training equipment lists, time estimates, things like that to try to incorporate cryopreservation into their facility. And then I've also gotten more interest from Research hatcheries, so hatcheries funded by universities or state agencies in the United States, like um, VIMS or Rutgers, LSU has a research hatchery, Auburn University has a research hatchery, and they, a lot of those have more established breeding programs because um, they're not totally just businesses, though they do sell oyster seed to farmers and other commercial hatcheries. But they have more funds available to do this research, this genetic research, develop breeding programs, and because they have more established breeding programs, they're they're more interested in the crier preservation because they they have the genetic resources that they'd like to protect. I find that commercial hatcheries. Um, might be more interested if there was some kind of private company that could come in and freeze their genetic resources instead of having to try to integrate cryopreservation into their operations um, themselves. Which I think makes sense because they are just commercial businesses um, which have you, you know tighter economic margins. So it'd be easier if a company could just come in and do that extra work for them instead of having the burden placed on them.
0: The best thing. We, um, I think we're ready to do our second break and listen to the songs that you picked. And cool. then after the break, can we... I'm going to ask you... I'm going to try to ask you some more personal questions, if you don't mind.
1: Okay, sure. Sounds good. All right. All right. Hey little piss baby, you think you're so fucking
0: cool, huh? You think you're so fucking tough? You talk a lot of big game for someone in such a small truck. Oh, look at those arms. Your arms look so fucking cute, they look like little cigarettes. I said I could smoke you, I could roast you, and then you'd love it, you'd text me, I love you, and then I'd fucking coast you. <laughs> What are we listening to?
1: Come on, Baby Cry by Orville Peck.
0: Why did you pick this song?
1: I picked this song because I really love Orville Peck. I think he is I think he has a beautiful voice, he's a great singer. I really love um his kind of country music and he is also queer and a very successful country artist, so I think that's really cool. And I saw him in concert once and he's even better live. His voice is just amazing.
0: And before the break, we were listening to Money Machine by 100 Gex.
1: Yes, 100 Gex.
0: And this song you like because...
1: 100 Gex was my introduction to a genre of music called hyperpop, which I really like. And I, I really like all their music. I think it's super fun and, and kind of crazy. And I think I when I discovered them, I think I was maybe like 26 or 27. And I kind of thought like, oh, my taste in music is set, like, I'm never going to find like a new artist or new genre I really like. And then I heard their stuff and I was like, oh, wow, this is crazy. I really like this. So kind of just expanded my music horizon. So that's why I picked it. It was it was really cool to discover them.
0: So, Dr. Bodestine, you mentioned that you developed some technology, some pieces of technology for your pathway. And this is something that you guys do a lot at the AGGRC Center, which is where you worked. Yes. Can you please provide some other examples of innovative technologies that peop- that they, you have developed at the center there? It, it doesn't have to be necessarily related to oysters, but it could be.
1: Sure, sure. So a little bit of background on where I work, the Aquatic Germplasm and Genetic Resources Center, we call it the AGGRC. The, the purpose of the center is to develop germplasm repositories for aquatic species. Um, It's interesting. The building that our center is actually in used to be a center for uh, bull cryopreservation and was for many, many years before my professor, Dr. Tiersch, moved into the building after the bull people moved out and decided he wanted to protect the genetic resources of aquatic species like oysters, uh, different fish species, catfish, and also biomedical models um, like Zephoferus. So the mission of the center is to develop these germplasm help people develop these germplasm repositories the center itself is not a repository we work with others to help them develop their own repositories that way if the cent- something happens and the center shuts down someone retires and it no longer exists the repository doesn't go away you know there's a lot of them all around the country um, so one of the tools that we use to help with this germplasm pository development is open hardware and open software. So the 3D printed straw funnel that I was talking about is, is an example of open hardware. We designed this 3D printed model. It can be printed on um, uh, an FDM 3D printer. So one of the printers that extrudes like little plastic the co- strands the, the and, most and builds things one, up. Right? Yeah, that's the most common one. There are other types of 3D printers like um, resin 3D printers that work a little bit differently. They're a little more complicated, but the, uh, the FDM printers are very simple for anyone to use, which is why we're interested in them because it's a very powerful way to distribute this technology to anyone who is interested. Um, I mentioned before that automated software that I use to measure sperm motility is very, very expensive some of the freezers that you use to freeze thousands of samples at a time are very very expensive and if you're an oyster hatchery or a fish farmer who's interested in cryopreservation you can't spend tens of thousands of dollars on all this equipment just to see if you like doing cryopreservation or not so we develop devices like the straw funnel and also devices that allow you to cryopreserve Um, we have two one is called the Cajun Ejector, one is called the Cryo Kit, and they both allow you to freeze samples at a controlled cooling rate, and they're both fully 3D printable. And actually, the the models are available on our website, aggrc.com, and also on NIH's 3D um, model website. I can't remember what that's called. It's called like NIH3D, something like that. The models are available too. So anyone who's interested, they can download the models. We provide instructions and they can start cryopreserving at a controlled cooling rate, which is very important for cryopreservation. So it's just a way to get technology and the process of cryopreservation into more people's hands at a, an affordable price.
0: Dr. Volesteyn, what's your next step? You, you finished your PhD now, what are you gonna do next?
1: Mm-hmm. I am going to a postdoc position working with the, um, the LSU oyster hatchery. And part of my work will be, again, industrial engineering focused. So oyster hatcheries are a really, part of, a really important part of the oyster off-bottom industry, on-bottom oyster industry, and also the conservation industry because they produce this juvenile oyster seed. And I don't think there are enough oyster hatcheries, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico. So Louisiana only has one oyster hatchery in the whole state. It's run by LSU and um, the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Um, So there's no private commercial hatcheries. And if something happens to the LSU oyster hatchery, like a hurricane, those happen all the time down here and it shuts down then the industry suffers, right? Because that's the only source of oyster seed uh, from the state originating from the state of Louisiana. So I'd like to do an industrial engineering project where I go in and simulate some of the processes that go on in an oyster hatchery, like growing algae, spawning the oysters, growing up the seed, growing up the larvae, setting the larvae, different things like that. And then create, again, providing estimates of, you know, what it takes to set up an oyster hatchery, because we don't have a lot of tools that tell you, you need this many people to produce this many seed in a year, it's going to cost you this many money, this much money, you definitely need this and this and this equipment to be able to successfully run an oyster hatchery. And I want to be able to provide tools. So uh, just private citizens can start setting up oyster hatcheries and be profitable and also benefit the, the industry at large.
0: So you mentioned earlier that you're from Chicago. Yes. How did it feel moving to New Orleans? Because New Orleans has a a strong personality. New Orleans, I mean New Orleans area, right? You're not in New Orleans, right? UDPHG was not in New Orleans. I'm
1: literally in New Orleans as we speak right now.
0: Okay, so New Orleans has a, a lot of personality. Yes. How did that feel for you?
1: Well, I didn't move directly from Chicago to New Orleans. I took more of a roundabout route, but... Um, New Orleans is definitely one of the favorite cities I've ever lived in. I think, as you said, it has a really strong culture um, originating from Black, Creole, indigenous cultures, which still shines through in the city, which makes it just a really fun place to live. We have parades all the time, which is super fun. Everyone is really nice, you know, locals that have lived here forever. People just, people just are really passionate about living here, which is really, really nice. And that really shines through in just the vibe of living in the city. And the architecture here is really beautiful. The food's really nice. There's always something going on. So I, I really enjoy living in New Orleans.
0: And Dr. Borstein, I know that you have a couple of hobbies that might surprise the audience. For mm-hmm. example, that you're a rugby player and you're a skater.
1: Yes. Well, I'm kind of a former rugby player and maybe former skateboarder as well. We'll see. Um, But yeah, I did play rugby when I was in undergrad. um, And that was really, really fun. I I do miss playing it a lot. Um, It's such an interesting sport. I never thought I was going to play. My friend was just like, hey, I'm on the rugby team. You should join because it's super fun. And I was like, that's crazy. I don't want to do that. But then she convinced me to come to a practice and I ended up having a lot of fun. So I, I really enjoyed playing rugby in college.
0: And skating, why do you say you might be a former skater?
1: I dislocated my knee skateboarding a couple months ago. I'm still recovering from that injury and still deciding if I want to continue skateboarding or not. It was a very bad injury. So I don't want to have to go through something like that again, but my partner and I started skateboarding during the pandemic and there is a cool skate park in new Orleans. There's a cool queer skate community in new Orleans that I like being a part of and skateboarding is just really fun. It like just feels really fun to do. Um, So I do really enjoy skateboarding. I don't know if I'm going to do it again, but I don't know. Maybe I'll transition to longboarding or something a little more mellow.
0: Have you skated at all since the injury?
1: No. No, I have not. Are you scared? I am scared. I also just don't have the strength back in my knee to continue skateboarding again. It's been a really, really slow recovery process, which has been um, a little bit frustrating.
0: And then also in the acknowledgments of your thesis, you think you're bunnies you have you own rabbits
1: yes my partner and i we have two rabbits bartleby um a little little boy rabbit who's a lot of trouble and then kyle who's like twice as big as him and she's um way more mellow and and she's really cute as well so um i've had oh man i've had bartleby for almost 10 years and we've had Kyle for nine years so they've been the, they've been with me through undergrad my master's degree and all of my PhD. so they definitely deserve deserved a shout out in the acknowledgements
0: so how how is it owning a rabbit or I don't know if owning is the right term but living with a rabbit do they show love at all
1: yeah they do um it kind of depends on a personality i would say ra- owning a rabbit is super similar to having a pet cat you know some cats are a little more inclusive they like to do their own thing some cats are super affectionate it's the exact same way with rabbits one of our rabbits kyle she's a little more affectionate and bartleby is like a little more rambunctious but he gets jealous if you're petting kyle so he'll hop over because he wants pets too so they have unique personalities they're a really fun pet and yeah, they're super soft, super cute. I, I really like having some rabbits around.
0: Doctor Boriston, did you did you have a chance to see the AI generated picture?
1: I did, yes. Can it you was... guess
0: what I typed in the prompt to generate that image?
1: I'm gonna guess you typed like orange slices inside of an oyster shell.
0: <laughs> it's funny it's funny you say that because I said I think the AI might misunderstood what I wanted it or him or she to do. Uh Um, I typed a Clementine Hunter style painting of a 3D printed oyster. So I think that's where the orange... Oh, a
1: Clementine Hunter? What does that mean?
0: So Clementine Hunter is a a famous painter from Louisiana.
1: Oh, okay. Very cool. I haven't... Okay.
0: So so I wanted... I don't know. I wanted something in her style. And I guess... A.I. didn't know that, so that's where the orange comes from.
1: Oh, that's so funny. I do see that now. Yeah, I think it meant, I think uh, it thought you meant inside of an oyster shell.
0: (laughs) So, did you have a good time?
1: I did, yeah. This was super fun. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thank you for being in Science Stories.